have heard it said that three times is a charm. I meant to say something about an insert in your bulletin when I first stood up. Didn't do it. So Scott handed it to me before I came up to pray, and I looked at it and saw Reach Somerset, and I said, yes, let's pray for Reach Somerset. What I didn't say was, on the back of your uh, faith talk, is a place where you can write any questions you might have about that and uh, leave them at the welcome desk on your way out. Now, they're no good after today. So if you've got any questions about what we're talking about that you won't answer tonight, write those down uh, and, and leave them at the uh, welcome desk on your way out, and we will gather those and we will utilize some of your questions. Now, I'll tell you, we've got our own questions already made up for some of them. But uh, yours are probably a whole lot better than ours. So uh, if you would, take time to do that. No question is a bad question. No question is a dumb question. Only those that aren't asked are the dumb ones, I guess. So, uh, so take time to do that uh, before you leave here today and leave that out on the, on the desk, if you would. Take your Bibles and turn with me, if you will, to, to Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 9. Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 9. We're still talking about our union with Christ, what that means. We talked about our union with Christ as it relates to, to our mind, that union with Christ changes our thinking, it changes the way we think and the way we look at things and, and where we set our affections and where we set our, our minds, and, and that's an important thing. But the thing that gives us the power to set our minds on those right things is what Paul is talking about beginning in verse 9, when he talks about our union with Christ in relation to the Holy Spirit. I, I want you to hear this because this is really Paul's exposition, if you will, of what Brother Todd read out of John's Gospel, which we studied months ago in our study of John's Gospel, when Jesus said, I'm, go I'm not going to leave you as orphans, I'm not going to leave you unprotected, I'm not going to leave you all alone in this world, I'm going to send the Comforter, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, and He will come and he will indwell you, and he will fill you, and he will protect you, and he will teach you all things, and he will bring to your memory the things that I've said. And Paul now, in thinking about our union with Christ, brings in this idea that he wants us to see the importance and the power of the Holy Spirit dwelling within us and working within us. That's so vital that we understand that. That's so vital that we recognize how we are not left all alone in this world because sometimes we think we are. Sometimes we feel so alone in our Christian walk. Sometimes in our struggle with our own sin, we feel like there's just no help at all. Paul wants you to understand there is not only help, there's solutions. There's not only help, there's power to overcome it. And, and we must learn that, we must know that, and we must make that application to our life every single day. So Paul writes these words, and they're important words. Hear them, if you will, start in verse 9. However, now that however has to be referred to before we go any further. You remember last week he said, because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God, it doesn't subject itself to the law of God, it's not even able to do so, and those who are in the flesh cannot please God. That's an important thing to understand. But then he says, however... Uh, that is an absolute truth, but I recognize that you are not in the flesh, but you are in the Spirit. He's talking to believers here. You're not in the flesh, but you're in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, 
But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. In other words, there's no such thing as a Christian who doesn't have the Holy Spirit. There's no such thing as a Christian who needs to go out and somehow find the Holy Spirit or, or do something new and better and, and stronger to get the Holy Spirit. He said, I want you to understand this. Anyone who, is, who does not have the Spirit of Christ doesn't belong to him. He's lost. He's in the flesh. However, if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him who raised Christ from the dead, raised Jesus from the dead, dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brethren, we are, we are under obligation, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. Or you are li- you, if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if the Spirit... If by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons, these are the children of Almighty God. This is the word of our Lord. Over 300 years ago, J.I. Packer tells this story in one of his books. Over 300 years ago, uh, Thomas Goodwin Uh, who was the Puritan president of Magdalen College at Oxford, in Oxford, England, had a student drop by one day to to visit with him, to talk to him, uh, ostensibly about a a class that he was teaching or a lecture they had given. But the student stopped by his study to talk to him. Goodwin's study was somewhat dark, had no windows and just had candles in it. And as the student entered that dark study of Thomas Goodwin, uh, Thomas Goodwin began the conversation by asking his visitor, if he were ready to die. Now place yourself in that, a dark, dingy, dungeon-looking study, and the first words out of your professor's mouth is, are you ready to die? The student got up and fled, the story is told, and got out of there as quickly as he could. And and the story for 300 years has been told for laughs, and, and so it should be, I suppose. But we ought to realize that if this really happened or not, that that is not a bad pastoral question that Goodwin was asking. Because the Puritans understood that if you're not ready to die, then you're really not ready to live. If you're not ready to die, then you're not even living in this world. No matter how old you are, how young you are, the, one, the secret, if you will, to inner peace and living the fullness and the fullness of Christ in this life ha- means that you are realistically ready to die whether it's tomorrow or today or 25 years from now. You're, you're prepared for death. As, as one old Puritan said, you're packed up and ready to go. And it's not absurd to remind ourselves that that's a fact of life that we need to be thinking about. And as believers, we ask ourselves every day, are you ready to die? Whether you're struggling with a terminal illness or struggling with a bad cold or whether you're in perfect health, question has to be always considered are you prepared to die Paul is concerned about that in this passage Uh, and he's concerned about death on two levels whether you're going to die spiritually and be alienated from God and his grace and his righteousness for all of eternity and whether you're going to die physically and that is a reality that's going to happen to every single one of us at some point and some time 
unless the Lord returns prior to that, we're all going to face that. And so Goodwin's question is a good question for you and me to start with this morning. Are, are we ready to die? Paul says, I want you to understand, it's the Holy Spirit that prepares your heart. It's the Holy Spirit that prepares you for, to be able to live in this life and to be able to face death when it comes. He starts out by saying, if you have the Spirit of God, if the Spirit of God dwells in you, if you have the Spirit of Christ, and notice the interchangeableness of all that, he's not talking about two different persons, he's talking about the, the unity of the Trinity, he's talking about the triune God who, who is the only true and the living God, he's not a monotheistic God, he is a, he is a monotheistic God in a Trinitarian expression. But he's not a singularity God, like the false gods of other religions. He is the, it's the Spirit of God. It's the Spirit of Christ. It's the Holy Spirit that dwells in him. And he says, I know that because you've placed your faith in Christ, that you're not like that, living in the flesh, setting your mind on fleshly things. But your mind is set on the things of the Spirit because you're not in the flesh. Paul makes that in verses 9 through 11, just a linchpin of this whole chapter, really. Recognizing that a believer is one in whom the Spirit of God, Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit dwells. And from that Holy Spirit comes the source of strength and power. He even says it's the Spirit the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. What more phenomenal miracle has there ever been than our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ crucified for our sin, bearing our sins upon his body, bearing the wrath of God on, in his body that we deserve, and then being laid in a tomb, and three days later, the stone rolling away, and that one who was dead, that one who was crucified, coming forth. Did that not take a mighty power to do that? It's the same power that spoke the universe into existence. It's the same creative God who said, let there be light, and there was light. And who separated the waters from the land by his very word. And who created all the animals and everything that there is. The, the power of God that created everything there is, sustains everything there is, and brought Jesus out of the tomb, Paul says, is the same power, the same spirit, the same person that dwells in you, if indeed you are a believer. Now, sometimes I guess we just kind of have to let that sink in. That's heavy. That's important. To recognize that the Holy Spirit of God dwells within a believer. Why is he there? What is he there for? I mean, he's there to give us life. He's there to, uh, Jesus said in, in his passage on that, that that Todd read earlier, he's there to say, uh, you know, to, to convict of sin and righteousness and judgment. The Holy Spirit is a convicting spirit. He, he's a spirit that shows us what sin is, shows us what righteousness is, and brings about judgment to, upon all the earth because of that uh, of what those things are Jesus said I want you to know this spirit is a is an authoritative spirit he's a powerful spirit he is the spirit of the living God dwelling among us and teaching us and I'm sending him to you and Paul says I want you to see why this spirit has been sent to you it's been sent to you primarily 
it says in verses 12 and 13 that you might understand how and what it means to put to death the deeds of the body. Verses 12 and 13 are kind of the center of it, and it talks about what the old Puritans would call and what the old, old English language would call the mortification of sin. The later translations translate it very well, that putting to death the deeds of the body, putting to death the deeds of the flesh. King James said it this way in, in verse 12. He said, for, or verse 13, For if, you live, if, excuse me, if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. It's hard for me to even say ye. I, I just, you is the natural thing to say. But uh, Paul said, and, and King James translated that, putting to death the deeds of the body with the word mortification. There's several things Paul is saying about mortification there, or about putting to death the deeds of the flesh, the deeds of the body that you need to understand. The first thing... Paul is saying is this, that this is a ruthless, full-hearted resistance to sinful practice in the believer's life. It's a full, ruthless, full-hearted, ruthless resistance to the practice of sin. As a matter of fact, the very word that's translated put to death or mortification, mortify the deeds of the flesh, is a very violent and totalitarian word. It's not, a, it's not an easy word. It's not a word that just talks about, well, at a particular time, this person died. Or, or so. It's a violent word that talks about taking these deeds of the flesh, deeds of the, the body, and violently putting them to death in your own life. It's a word that means hating them so much that you just have to kill them within your own life. You cannot tolerate them. It's a clear-sighted recognition of evil as evil. So Paul is saying, when the Spirit of God, when the Spirit of Christ, when the Holy Spirit indwells your life, there becomes a recognition immediately of evil, of sin. The Holy Spirit is there to shine a light. The Holy Spirit is there to say, when you fall into sin or when you freely walk or choose to walk into sin, the Holy Spirit is there to say to you, that is evil, that is wrong, that is a sin. He's there to put on bells and whistles and sirens and flashing lights and say, get out of it. Put it aside. Put it to death. It's really a decisive and radical repudiation that, that nothing can really fit except saying, putting it to death, killing it. That means that if we take that seriously, what Paul is saying about ruthlessly resisting sinful practice in our life, that the Christian doesn't play games with sin. We, we don't play games with sin. We don't flirt with sins. We don't even think about sin as something that, you know, we'll just kind of wean ourselves off of. As though it were something that in our own power we can just kind of say, you know, I'll just, I'll just do a little less sin tomorrow and I'll just work on it and I'll try my best and I'll wean myself away from sin. It's not something that we say, oh, well, you know, I'm, I'm strong. I can, I can keep it under control. Yeah, I don't. Paul says it's something that has to be killed. It's something that has to be put to death. And he's saying you don't have the strength and you don't have the power in your own might and in your own ability to kill it. It requires something that is apart from you and yet indwelling you. It's the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of God, that gives you the ability to put it to death. And, and he's saying here, 
Christians, quit playing games with sin. Quit acting as though sin is just some little peccadillo. Just some little something that, you know, you can take or leave. You can, you, you can have it today and give it up tomorrow and put it back. You know. Don't play games with sin. Don't flirt with sin. Now, you might say, well, Bill, what are some of those sins that we ought not be flirting with? I don't know what they are in your life. I know what they are in my life, and I'm not about to tell you. But you know what they are in your life if the Spirit of Christ dwells within you. Because the Spirit of Christ is that searchlight. The Spirit of Christ is that burning light that is showing that these things need to be resisted in His power and not in our own. Secondly, there's this idea given from the Apostle Paul in verses 12 and 13 that, that mortifying ourselves and mortifying sin, killing sin with our life, is learning what it means to change our motivation. To change our motivation. That is, the, the, the motives of the heart, the internal part of the heart, is, is, is goes deeper than just merely resisting sinful behavior. It's not a legalistic thing that says, oh, I, I know that's sin, and I'm going to just be strong and not stand up to it. No, it goes beyond that. It goes to the very motives of our life. Paul says in verse 12, listen to this, this is so important. He says, brethren, we are under obligation. We are obligated. We have some obligations in our life. You know what obligations are. You have obligations, you have a, you have a house payment that you're obliged to pay every day it comes to you, once a month, more than likely. You have car payments, you have electric payments, you have water bill payments, you have all these payments that come to you and, and you are obligated to pay those legally because you have been using the product or using the house or using the car and so when that comes due, you're obligated to make that payment or else. Those are pretty much legalistic obligations. Paul's not talking about legalism here. Paul is talking about we are obligated not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, but we are under obligation, we're under obligation of the, turn two pages, we're under obligation to the Spirit. We're under obligation to God. We're under obligation to grace, to put to death those things. Not because, again, we're so strong to be able to do it, but because God has given us the grace, God has given us the cross, God has given us the death of Christ applied to our life, and now we're to live in accordance with it. Putting to death the deeds of the body. Changing our motivation, changing our behavior because our desires, our obligations are different. It's a matter of remembering what the grace is. It's a matter of remembering what happened first when Christ died on the cross but also remembering what happened when that work of the cross was applied to your life by the Holy Spirit and you believed and you trusted him and your life was was turned around and changed not because you said oh I think I'll just change my mind on this but because the Spirit of God radically invaded your life 
radically invaded your life and changed you by indwelling you. Paul is saying that sin has to be cut off the root. It's not something that, it's not something that just you, you prune every now and then and you trim back every now and then. It has to be killed. The root has to be destroyed. And the only way it can be destroyed is by the Spirit. And the only way the Spirit will work to destroy in our life is when we are constantly exposing ourselves to the truth of God's grace and remembering what took place on that cross. What took place when he died in our place? What took place when he bore that wrath that you deserve, I deserve? He stood there in our place. Now, would you pause there just a minute? I want you to think about that just a minute. Don't, don't think about me standing here. I want you to think about Christ on the cross dying. Horrific death. And not so much horrific physically, although it was, but horrific because it literally became hell to him because he bore your sin. Paul says it later to the Corinthians, he said, and he who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. That we might become the righteousness of God. He who knew no sin, never sinned, deserved nothing, bore our sin on the cross. He took your sin. You remember that sin you committed last week? born on the cross if you're in Christ if you're in union with Christ you, you remember that sin you committed this morning on the way to church whether it's a thought sin or an action sin or whatever, that sin if you're in Christ has been born on the cross you, you know that sin you're going to commit tomorrow if you're in Christ that sin has been born on the cross by Jesus already Think about that. What do you think? Boy, it ought to just cause a, an absolute tidal wave of gratitude to flow over our life. Wow. What I couldn't do for myself, Christ did. What the law couldn't do for me, Paul said, God did. Paul said the Ephesians, when we were dead in our trespasses and sin, could do nothing about it, but God, being righteous and being rich in mercy and grace, he did it for us through his son on the cross. That ought to give us a wave of gratitude. But it ought to also get, ought to give us a concept of indebtedness. Indebtedness not to sin. It's not like some of the Christians say in Paul's day, you know, well, uh, should we just go on sinning a whole lot more so grace can abound all the more? Paul said, heaven forbid, no. Our indebtedness is not to sin. Our indebtedness, he says, is not to the flesh. 
that our indebtedness is to be putting to death the deeds of the body. Our, our, our indebtedness is to Christ. Our indebtedness is to the Father. Our indebtedness is to the Holy Spirit. To express gratitude and desire obedience. As I said last week, the, the, the mark of the Christian is not perfection. But the mark of a Christian is aspiration. It is a desire to be more like him. Like the choir saying, to be less like me and more like him. And that's what Paul is talking about in this passage. You know where sin grows in your life and my life? You know what really fertilizes sin? Really nourishes it, helps it to grow? It's typically a, an attitude of self-pity, a, fee, a feeling that, that, that I heard Tim Keller say one time is, is a feeling of oldness, O-W-E-D-ness, owed, I, I just, I'm owed this. You know, you, you've had it happen in your life. You, you get a feeling of entitlement. Well, God didn't give me this, or I'm not getting a fair shake from God. And, and you know, all these people, it's like, it's like the psalmist was in Psalm 73. I look around me and I see the wicked prospering. I look around me and I see those who cry out to God and mock God and they're doing fine. And here I am struggling with everything. Here I am suffering in my life. I, I have all these problems and I try to keep my hands clean and my heart pure. And, and you know, God, why aren't you blessing me like that? That's an attitude of oldness, an attitude of entitlement. And, and so we find ourselves caught up in, in what we deserve, what we, do, what we ought to be getting, that, that we're not getting justice. Need I remind you, you don't want justice? Because justice is what grace has fulfilled so that you don't have to have justice, you don't have to get what you deserve. You don't have to get what you really are owed. The real way to learn mortification, John Owen, the great Puritan writer, reminds us is to bathe ourselves in the remembrance of God's grace. Don't forget to remember the grace of God. Don't forget to remember what He has done in order to give you life and give you his Holy Spirit as that searchlight in your life, as that convicting power in your life, as that power that brought Christ out of the grave that will give you power to overcome and put to death the deeds of the body, sin, mortification in your life. When we remember the grace of God, when we remember the cross, when we remember the gift of God through His Son, Jesus Christ, that remembrance will loosen and weaken and, and will start to kill sin at the heart level, at the motivational level, at the root level in your life. Here's how Owen put it. The great Puritan pastor. He, he had a heart for the cross and a heart for grace like Maybe no other writer has. We studied him a little on Wednesday nights during our doctrine study. This is what Owen said. What have I done? 
What love, mercy, what blood, what grace have I despised and trampled on? Is this the return I make to the Father for His love? To the Son for His blood? To the Holy Spirit for His grace? Do I thus repay the Lord in this manner, talking about His own sin? Have I defiled the heart that Christ died to wash? What can I say to the dear Lord Jesus? Do I account communion with Him of so little value that I desire sin over that communion? Shall I endeavor to disappoint the very purpose of the death of Christ? By giving myself to sin? By giving myself to the deeds of the body? Paul says, I want you to know this. Christian life is no trifling matter. The Christian life is not just getting religious. The Christian life is not just saying, hey, with all that I've got going on in my life, I'm going to add Jesus onto it. I'm going to make him a part of my life, but not all of my life. Paul is saying, don't you understand something? As one person said, the proposition that Jesus gives is either he is Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. Jesus is not something you add to your life that's sort of a, an extra you can turn to when you really want to or really need to. Jesus is the essence. Jesus is the center. Jesus is the Lord. And he will have it no other way. But, he, but Paul says, I want you to know this. Don't miss this, folks. Don't miss this. He has sent the Spirit to every believer. He has given the Holy Spirit to every believer. The Spirit is alive in you. And that means righteousness will be alive in you. Not perfection. But a desire for it. Desire to live righteous. Oh, we're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. We're viewed by God as righteous, and and if you will, positionally, we are already righteous in the heavenly places with Him. Paul says, desire it now. Pursue it now. Trust Him now. Let the Holy Spirit just wash over you by His power and by His grace and cleanse you and help you Put to death. Don't play with sin. Don't trifle with sin. Don't flirt with sin. Don't try to wean yourself off of it. Paul says it has to be put to death. And only his spirit indwelling you will do that. Let's pray together. There's no death of sin without the death of Christ. There is no death of sin in our life apart from that death being applied by His Holy Spirit. We 
If you are in Christ, in union with Christ, Paul says the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of the Holy Spirit dwells within you. Submit to his authority. Submit to the work that he wants to do in your life. Not just once, not just annually, but every day and every minute of every day. Father, Lord, speak to us and show us the power of your Spirit. Lord, let your Spirit shine that light in each of our lives right now of conviction. Show us our sin and cleanse us of it. Father, show men and women here who don't know you of their sin and their need for the Savior, the only Savior, Jesus Christ. Draw them to faith in Christ and surrender their lives, their hearts, their being by your grace to the one who can save. Father, speak to us. We pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Our hymn commitment is a very simple prayer. Change my heart, O Lord. By your Holy Spirit, by your grace, by your work, change my heart. Cleanse it.